1: Our faith is a faith that is dependent on the good shepherd doing what we could never do. Our relationship with God is dependent on him coming alongside and picking us up once and for all. That's what salvation is. It was actually a Sunday morning, I placed my phone in my back pocket, so it vibrated as I was preaching, but I didn't think it was an opportune time to answer. So between the services, I listened to the message. Your dad has fallen, he's broken his hip, and he's going into surgery. 25 years of ministry, I knew that when a ailing senior adult breaks their hip, it, it's not a It's not a good sign. Often, as was the case, it just begins what is a steady descent. And so, barring a Lazarus style miracle, that's kind of where my dad is. He's just descending as he ascends toward his eternal home in God's timing. Really, that fall became a fall where he could say, I've fallen i can't get up i remember that commercial some of you remember that it was for life alert or something like that the device like the one my mother wears on a little cord around her neck so in case at the assisted living she falls she can press this and someone can come to her assistance when you feel like you've fallen and you can't get up have you ever felt that way I have it's not that I didn't want to get up it's not that I didn't know I should get up there there have been times I feel like I've fallen and I I can't get up it's like that passage where Paul writes to the church at Corinth I have this thorn whatever this thorn is I I wanted it to go away but it just would not go away and I've fallen and I want to get up but I I can't get up what causes that well Sometimes it's caused by sinful choices, by the circumstances of life, by pain, insecurity, uncertainty. But according to the Bible, there's good news. And here's the good news. And neither falling nor failing need be fatal. Redemption and and restoration are always God's plan, and God wants you to live according to his plan. Whether it's failing or whether it's falling, that need not be fatal in your life. God is a God of redemption. God is a God of restoration. That's his plan for your life. And that's the message that you're going to find in Galatians chapter 6. We begin in just a moment in verse one. I want you to understand some context for this passage of scripture. Paul has been writing to the church at Galatia, and he's been challenging them about what it means to walk and live according to the spirit of God. Do You understand that the Bible teaches that when you were born, you were separated from God. It wasn't because of something you did. It's just who you are. I know it's popular today to say everybody's good but that's not biblical. The Bible teaches us that everybody's bad. We're separated from God, not because of what we've done, but because of who we are. It's this nature of sin in us. And this is a nature that every person is born with. The Bible says we all have sinned and fallen short of God's design. And if left undealt with, that sin would cause us to be separated, not just here on earth and miss out on God's best, but we're separated from eternity. And the Bible calls that a a place we know as hell. But God doesn't want that for you. That's why there are verses like this in scripture. God so loved, he thus loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, should not have to be separated in hell, but should have eternal life. Or this one, God demonstrates his love. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died. You see, the Bible says that we're born separated from God, but he doesn't want that. So when a person understands that Christ died for their sins, when they receive the forgiveness of God that Jesus makes available, when they submit control of their life to Jesus, something happens. The Bible says that you're filled with the spirit of God. Now, I'm a Baptist boy. I grew up in a Baptist preacher's home. We are from a Baptist tradition here in our church. And I have to tell you, just a confession. Baptists have not done a very good job talking about the Holy Spirit. I think it's probably because when I was growing up, we, taught, we, we called him the Holy Ghost. And anytime you've got the word ghost, it makes you a little frightened. So maybe we're scared of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. But I, I know this, the Bible teaches with crystal clarity... As my friend Jay Strike says, with Waterford crystal clarity, the Bible tells us that when you begin a relationship with God, the Holy Spirit of God indwells you and you begin to live and look differently. So that's what he talks about in Galatians 5. He gives us an example of what it looks like if you live according to the sark, the flesh, if you live just according to your desires and your wants and your ways, and there's a long list of sins And if you think of something as sinful, it's probably on that list in Galatians 5. And then he described what it looks like to live a spirit-led or a spirit-filled life. We see the characteristics of that life. We call them the fruit of the spirit. And so it's in this context that Paul's reminding us, hey, you are in a different camp now that you've got Jesus. Now that you've followed Jesus, you are indwelled by the spirit of God. You are a spirit-filled person. Things are supposed to look differently because when God looks at you, he sees things differently. Without Christ, when God looks at you, you know what he sees? He sees your flesh. In the Bible, it's the Greek word sark. Now that you've got Jesus, he doesn't see your flesh. You know what he sees? He sees Jesus. Jesus. That's pretty cool if you understand that it changes your relationship with God because the Bible says you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so when God looks at you, he first sees his son, Jesus Christ. It's in that context that you have Galatians 6. You remember when you open your scriptures that the Bible today is divided into chapters and verses That's not how this was written. This was a letter that Paul was writing to a group of Christians. And this is what he says in what we have as Galatians 6 verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, a word which simply means sin. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Be tempted. And then really the focal point of this passage, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus was asked, now did you come to abolish the law? And Jesus very clearly says, no, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. And here we're taught by the Spirit of God through his servant, the Apostle Paul. Hey, when you bear one another's burden, then you're fulfilling the the law of christ look at verse three for if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing he deceives himself but lest each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone not in his neighbor for each one will have to bear his own load now i probably should pause there pause there and just say this is not a contradiction it sounds like it doesn't it earlier i've just read bear one another's burdens and here it says, each one will have to bear his own load. Why, why the discrepancy? Well, that first word is a, a word that really does describe a burden, a care, something in your life that you didn't ask for. It's not part of who you are, but you're bearing that now. We're to bear one another's burdens. This is a different Greek word that's used when it says, each one should bear his own load. It, it's a word which literally means your, your pack, like a soldier's backpack. So, the idea from Scripture is that everybody goes through life, and there are some things that just are a part of who you are. There are some things you're going to have to bear as a part of the way God created you. Bear your own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. We call this in the Bible the law of the what? It's the law of the harvest. And it's a law in every aspect of life, not just spiritually. You get what you plant. You reap what you sow. If you want okra, don't plant tomato seed. If you want to get a watermelon, don't go looking at an orange tree. That's not the way it works. There's a law in the harvest. And in our life, there will be consequences for what we do in life. The choices we make, the words we say, the things we do will have consequences. You will reap what you have sown. Verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit, reaps eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good. Anybody here that would say, Pastor, I'm a little weary today. Anyone? I'm in that category. Anyone else? All right. Listen to not my words. This is the word of God. Inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, according to the law of the harvest, we will reap If we do not give up. Verse 10. So then. As we have opportunity. Let us do good. To everyone. Say everyone. And especially. To those who are the household. Of faith. May God add his blessing. To the reading of his perfect word. long been said that the christian army is the only army that shoots her own wounded an organization an organism a a fellowship of people that should be known as people of grace at core to our characteristic people who have been accepted and so people who act with acceptance and grace to others that should be our defining marks and and yet we're not known by that are we We're often known for what and who we seem to be against. And so when someone has messed up, when they've blown it, when they've ruined things in their mind, often we kick them when they're down. I've noticed four different responses to how supposed Christ followers deal with sin. Let me give those to you. See if any of them sound familiar. First is this idea, cast the sinner out. So someone blows it, They can no longer be a part of the club. We don't be around you. It's kind of like we're going to get the cooties. We don't want you to rub off on us. Leave our group. And here's the facts. Your street, my street is littered with people who somewhere along the way made a choice that they knew was not wise. They understood was not right. And many of them, by a professing people of faith, were pushed aside. And like the person robbed in the story of the Good and Samaritan, they were left on the side of the road as the religious people walked by, cast the sinner out. There, there's a second one that's equally unbiblical. And, and this is what I would call it, sweeping under the rug. Pretend it didn't happen. Pretend it's not there. And let's just keep on keeping on. Amen. How's that working for you? In your own life, you got a sin issue, a sin problem? Don't address it, just pretend it's not there. It's like the conversation I had earlier this week with someone praying for a family member who had not been to the doctor, had not really noticed any symptoms, but by the time they did get to the doctor, they realized that cancer had metastasized to the brain and there were likely only weeks to live. Yet when there's a cancer in the body, it doesn't really help just to ignore it. And when sin is in the camp, whether it's your life or the church, it doesn't help to ignore it. There's a third way. And, and this one seems like it's going in the right direction, but it's also unbiblical. I would call this forgive and forget. Of course we want to forgive because the Bible tells us if we're to be forgiven, we must forgive. But here's a problem. Last time I checked, we can't forget. God can. That's one of the mysteries of God. The Bible says that when he forgives us, he separates our sin as far as the East is from the West. In other words, it's gone. He removes our transgression. But no matter how holy I try to be, I've discovered I, I don't really forget stuff. <laughs> and so we've still not dealt with the issue. Now, the biblical model is repentance. The biblical model is restoration. Remember what we said? You may fail and you may fall, but that does not have to be fatal. The thing that keeps it from being fatal is repentance, recognizing your need for God and turning to him. Restoration, let God give the healing that only he can give. And that's what's described in Galatians chapter 6. Notice how he begins, brothers. What can we learn by his description, his word brothers? Who is he speaking to? It's the family of God. He's speaking to other Christians, Christ followers, those who profess to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We may call it the fellowship. We may call it the family of God. That's who he's speaking to. When you're in a family, it makes things different. The Bible says that when you begin a relationship with God, you're adopted into his family. We've got four boys that were born in our family by natural birth, Micah, Caleb, Noah, and Luke, age 24 down to age 16. But a few years ago, God began to burden our heart to adopt a little girl into our family. Her name's Aniah. You know, when we went through that process, we made a determination. Though this won't be easy, though sometime it will shatter our world, though sometimes it will be greatly challenging, she will always be a part of our family. We can't undo what we've done. And when you're adopted into God's family, that's the way it is. I I took her a little treat on Valentine's Day. I met her at her school for a daddy date for lunch. I wanted to take her a happy meal, but our, our schools have gone nutty. You can't take food, you can't take candy. So I took her a little gift and I was telling her teacher when I got there, I said, I hope she's got her lunch because I couldn't bring food. She said, oh no, she doesn't care about that, but she's bouncing off the walls. She just wants you. So I get there and we're sitting there in the school cafeteria where it's louder than a jet engine. (laughs) I'm just looking at her and she's smiling ear to ear. After she eats a little bit, she leans in and she says, dad. I said, yeah. She said, will you always be my Valentine? And my eyes begin to sweat. And I said, you better believe it. You can't get rid of me. And even when that old boy has passed God's test and has passed my test and didn't run away when I pointed the gun at him. Even then, I'll be your second Valentine because you're family. So Paul was saying, hey, what I'm about to say has different meaning because we're family. And part of what he was getting at is when you sin, your sin has consequences in the family. Have any of you lived that out in a real life family? Yeah, somebody else did something that was wrong. They may have made a poor choice or a sinful decision. And it wasn't just them. It hurt. It hurt the family. So that's what we're about to deal with. So just understand that. And I'm grateful that you've chosen to come in here. And I'm grateful that you're listening or watching today. But the reality is when you make a sinful choice, it affects more than just you. It affects the family. So he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, caught is a word in the original language. It speaks to a sudden or an unexpected fall into sin. Have you ever had those times? You're just minding your own business. You're having a good day. But the tempter showed up. And you just fell again into doing something that you've struggled with. Remember we said the Apostle Paul's thorn. It could have been a sin struggle that he was facing. And unexpectedly, there you go again. You're you're back in to that sin. But then he says, Those of you who are spiritual, that's us, that's the family, that's the church. Those of us who are walking in the spirit, we are to restore those who have fallen. See, I I want you to understand something today that as long as God gives me breath and as long as he allows me to be here, it will be the goal of our church. We are not a museum for dusty saints. No, we're a hospital for dirty sinners like me. We're not we're not supposed to be a place just why where, where those who think they've got it all together come and show off and strut our stuff. We're supposed to be a place where the weakest, the most vulnerable, the most hurting, and the challenged in society can come and say, I need you, Jesus. Come to my rescue. And so he says, You who are spiritual, restore them. That word restore would have had at least three meanings in Jesus' day. It could have been used to describe the restoration or the setting of a broken bone. By God's grace, I've not had a broken bone. I've been around a few and I've seen some that were broken so severely they had to be set. In other words, put back in the place. I'm thankful I haven't lived through that because that looks like it is a painful process. And being restored, being made right is not always easy. It can hurt, but it leads to healing. Another way that word could be used is the mending of a fishing net. Um, My son Noah, on Friday, his basketball team won their district championship. So my little girl was bouncing off the walls at school. He was bouncing off the gym walls Friday night, he was so excited. I looked over and I saw him hanging with one hand on the goal and with scissors in the other hand, he was cutting the net. And then I saw he was getting tired and one of his friends came up and, and held him up and let him be on his shoulders and he cut the net and then everybody on the team got a little piece of the net. But when Noah came home, I noticed he had a couple pieces of net. And I noticed he was taking a lighter and he was trying to fuse those pieces of net together to use for a specific purpose. He was making a key ring. So when Jesus would have been referring to restoring or mending a net, what was he saying? Well, if a net is broken, it's not going to serve its purpose. It's not going to catch fish. So when you're restored, what is it allowing you to do? You're not just being healed. Your purpose is being restored. See, if you're living in sin, if you've fallen and you can't get up, You're not doing what God created you to do. The third meaning, though, is equally uh, impacting. It could be used to make a boat or a ship seaworthy. So when I was probably about two, my dad made a canoe out of fiberglass, a big red canoe. And so when I grew up, we would go on the Black Creek in South Carolina and we would ride in the canoe. That thing weighs more than a 900-pound gorilla. If you were to buy a canoe today, a, a one strong man could carry the canoe, could pick it up because they're aluminum. This thing is fiberglass. It, two strong men are still going to lose their breath carrying this thing. But my brother asked me a couple weeks ago, he said, do you ever take the canoe out because we've got it here at our house? And I said, no, I, I think before I take it out, I'd probably need to do some repair. What am I saying? I, I need to make it seaworthy because I, I can't take the journey until it's been restored. So do you get what I'm saying when he says, hey, brothers, family, hello, family, there's some around you who've fallen and they can't get up. You who are spiritual, you who are in the family, you're the ones, every one of you are the ones who are supposed to come along beside them and restore them so that they can have healing, so that they can live their life on purpose, so that they can be prepared for the journey that God has in store for them. So how do we do that? Well, it begins with a sense of honest self-awareness. Remember what he said? Keep watch of yourself lest you too be tempted. You've got to have self-awareness before you can bear one another's burdens. But when you're self-aware, when you've looked into the mirror of God's Word and you think, okay, I understand, then you begin to think
2: of others. You've been listening to The Barnabas Effect with Pastor Paul Purvis. The Barnabas Effect is here to provide listeners like you with biblical truth and spiritual encouragement.